I want to ask you, uh, have you discovered this gem of a book called Job? Have you personally discovered the richness of this book called Job? A lady called Nancy Guthrie discovered this book when she was in the valley herself. Uh, Her story goes like this, that Christian woman, godly Christian, married to David. Uh, They fell pregnant and their baby was born and they called her Hope. And the doctors knew within days there was something wrong with this child and they finally diagnosed her with what's called Zellweger syndrome, a metabolic disorder. And the doctors told Nancy and David the news that no newborn parents want to hear that their daughter would not live beyond a year old. She grieved, she mourned. Uh, David had a vasectomy. Uh, But then the unimaginable happened that she fell pregnant again, miraculously. And the doctor said there'd be a one in a million chance that the other baby would have the same condition. But when Gabriel was born, he too had the same condition. And so she's mourning the death of two children. She's grieving the loss of two kids. And so she discovers Job and she said, it didn't comfort me, but it was a way of handling the pain. It didn't comfort me, but it was a way of handling the pain. And she wrote this book called Holding On To Hope. That is the name of her daughter, Hope. It's raw, it is honest. Quote is about walking with Job, walking with Job through doubt, anger, pain, and heartache to a deeper, stronger faith in my God. I recommend that book to you as a little commentary on Job. So Nancy discovered Job through suffering. David discovered the book of Job as he sat in hospital with his wife, who'd had a third miscarriage. Emily discovered the book of Job as she grieved the loss of both her parents within 12 months of each other. My friend David discovered the book of Job as he battled deep, deep depression. I just want to ask you, have you discovered this book called Job? Because if you haven't, if you haven't yet, can I encourage you to do that? Because you will face suffering, you will face trials, and you'll need to know what to do in those times. And you also need to know how to care for and comfort others who are in the deepest of valleys. If you've just joined us, uh, Job is about one man called Job, and in chapter one, he's called blameless and blessed. He fears God, he shuns evil. But God gives this terrible permission, and on one day, he loses his property, his possessions, his health, his wealth, and all his kids. Chapter 3 of Job, he, he pours out his pain. He cries, why, why, why? And God sends his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And chapters 4 to 27 are these cycles of three speeches. Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. And we're told that these friends came to comfort him. That was their intention, and they begin well. They sit in silence, and then they speak, and their words don't comfort. Their words correct, and their words condemn. And these so-called friends, they have such, such a simplistic, narrow, rigid, cold theology, which basically says, Job, you're suffering because you sinned. Awful theology. 
If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. And Job, you're getting bad, so you must have done bad. And they, they, they preach at Job again and again and again and again. They are relentless. And next week, we can look at Job's response in chapter 28. This week, Job's response in chapter 19. So Bildad has just spoken and told Job he's a wretched sinner. Then Job replied. Let's listen. How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. <laughs> he tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies, or oh, his troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own voice. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. My intimate friends detest me. Those I love have forgotten me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Oh, have pity on me. My friends, have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never have enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded. That they were written on a scroll. That they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, 
and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say how we will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves. For wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And then you will know that there is judgment. Feel the pain? Do you feel his anguish and his agony? Do you feel his heart is aching? Do you feel it? That's how Job is supposed to be read a man who is in pain and a man who is hurting and he's feeling utterly crushed. And the big question from Job 19 is this Is God for me or is God against me? Is God for me or is God against me? Have you ever asked that question? You, know, you read your Bible and you read, you know, God loves me and Jesus died for me and Jesus cares for me. But there are those times in life where you go, really God? It doesn't feel like that right now that you're really for me. It feels like you're actually against me. I sat with a, a grieving uh, wife who's Husband had been killed tragically in a car crash far, far, far too young. And she said that it feels like God is against me. I sat with a couple whose kid, who's now a teenager, has significant behavioral problems that they feel unsafe in their own home because he just constantly attacks them. And this godly couple said, it just feels like God's against me. The, the couple who long to have kids, the single person who longs to be married, constantly feeling like, what have I done, God? I could name real people. Bruce Chapman. Why? Four brain tumors. Stephen the Dean. Why is Ireland Hospital? Corey and Sarah. Why? Is God for me or is God against me? Surely you've asked that question. And we know the Sunday school answer. We know the biblical answer. We can quote Romans chapter 8. You know, since God is for us, who can be against us, it says. And we know that's true, but to be honest, sometimes our experience suggests otherwise. And that's why Job 19 is such a gift. Firstly tonight, it's okay to howl. It's okay to scream and cry and pour out your pain. In this chapter, Job is howling. He's howling because he feels crushed by his friends. Their words are awful. How long will you torment me and crush me with your words? 
How long, friends, will you accuse me? How long will you speak so confidently about my so-called sin that you don't see and you can't see? How long will you keep telling me that my God is against me? You are miserable comforters, he says. You are cruel and you are crushing and it is constant. Verse 3, 10 times now you've reproached me time and time and time again. Just shut up. You ever felt like that? In the valley about 12 years ago personally and these Christian friends came around to see me. And after an hour of their constant talk, I wanted to say, just shut up. They didn't help. They made things worse. And you know, I just said, would you please leave? That's okay, you know. I wonder whether these, these so-called friends ever stopped to consider what it must have been like for Job to lose all his kids or to lose his health. Did these friends ever put their arm around Job and say, Job, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry you're going through this. I don't know why, but I am here for you. Of course they didn't. Because these so-called friends have got all their theology right, haven't they? They are simplistic and narrow and rigid and cold. They claim to know what God will do and what God has done. Like God is this predictable slot machine where you put in good and you get out good and you put in bad and you get out bad and because Job is suffering, he must have done bad. And these so-called friends, they are so proud, verse 5. Job says to them, if you indeed would exalt yourselves above me, look at you, you think you're so wonderful and use my lowness, my humiliation against me. He's saying, how dare you look down on me because I am suffering. You don't want friends like this, do you? But more importantly, you don't want to be a friend like this, do you? Please don't be like this to anybody. It's okay to howl when you feel crushed by your friends. It's okay to howl when you feel crushed by God. That's how Joe feels. He feels like God is confused by him. He's wrestling with God and he's crying, why, God, have you done this? And I can say that's actually a good thing. It is such a good thing that Job actually wrestles with God. He's not blocking God out. He's not cursing God. He's not ignoring God. And Job doesn't do what I reckon most of us in this room do. In these times of real pain, we, we kind of replace God with some kind of temporary pleasure. Open another bottle of red wine. Run to your comfort foods. Put on another series of Netflix. And hopefully your pain will go away. Job doesn't do that. He actually says, God has done this to me. Verse 6, know that God has wronged me. That's how he feels. He feels, verse 6, as though God has drawn a net around him. Like he's been hunted. He feels trapped. He feels as though he's being attacked by God. He feels he's been mugged by God. That's the the sense of verses 7 and 8. He feels like he's in an alleyway, a dark alleyway, and and the attacker has come, and that attacker is God himself. Verse 7, though I cry, violence! I get no response from you, God. And I call for help, God, but there is no justice. What are you doing, God? He feels, verse 8, as though God has blocked the way. He's in a dead-end alleyway. 
And worse than that, there is no light, it's just darkness. He feels like God has stripped him, verse 9, has taken away his respect and his honor, his stability, his security. He feels, verse 10, as though he's been uprooted like a tree. That's interesting. Back in chapter 14, Job talked about being pruned like a tree. But when you prune a tree, you prune a tree because you know that a pruned tree is going to regrow again. When you uproot a tree, there is no coming back. He feels, verse 12, as though he's been sieged by God. Troops advancing, building a siege ramp against me and encamping around my tent. And we're supposed to imagine there that, that Job is, is there in his little Kathmandu one-man tent. And he pokes his head out and he's been surrounded by the whole of the Australian army. The tanks are there, the guns are there. He's saying, it's just little me. Surely, God, you've got bigger issues in this world than just little me. But if you're feeling like this tonight, if you're feeling like God is against you, if you're feeling like God is attacking you, if you're feeling that you're being stripped and slammed by God, it's okay to tell God that you're feeling like that. It really is. He feels crushed by God. He feels crushed by loneliness. He feels all alone. And that's an awful feeling, isn't it? I mentioned a few months back now that the government in the UK last year appointed a minister for loneliness because loneliness has become epidemic proportions in that country. I was talking to a grieving mother recently, not from this church. And she said something like this, when, when, my, when my loss was fresh, there were people all around me, they called, they offered to help, they brought meals, they sent cards, and that care eased the pain for a while. But then it stopped, and there was no phone calls and no visits, and friends felt uncomfortable around me, and life continued for them, but my life was never the same. And I began to feel like an outcast. I'd got nothing to offer. I was not interesting, and why would want people want to be around me? And I felt totally alone. That's how Job feels, verse 13. He's alienated from his family. You know, the families get together for Sunday lunch, and he's not there, and they get together for weddings, and he's not there. Verse 14, my closest friends have forgotten me. You imagine that his closest friends organize a weekend away up to the mountains, and he hears about this weekend away, but he's not invited anymore. And they're sitting there talking about life, and one of them said, oh, what about Job? Oh, yeah, who's Job? Oh, no, I've deleted his contact from my iPhone. Everyone's forgotten him. Verse 15, my guests, the people who once visited his house and enjoyed his food and his company, they don't want to know him now. Verse 16, I summon my servants. He once rang the bell and the servants would come running, but now he rings and they ignore him. Verse 17, his breath is offensive to his wife. She can't stand to be near him. Loathsome to my own family. Verse 18, even little boys on the street, the kids in the street, they, they laugh at me, they throw their rotten tomatoes at me. Verse 19, all my intimate friends detest me. It's that feeling of being completely alone. I don't know whether you've ever felt that. Someone said this, you hear laughter in the room next door, but there's no laughter in your life. 
the family are having a get-together, but you know you're not invited. So what do you do when you feel like this? What do you do when you're cut off from friends and family where you feel crushed by God and you feel crushed by all your friends? What do you do? Be honest. I hope you don't run to alcohol. That's not going to solve it. I hope you don't run to pornography. That's not going to solve it. I hope you don't run to comfort eating or endless, endless movies on TV. I hope you don't run to shopping or self-pity. I hope you howl and you howl to God. Is God for me? Is God against me? Surely you've asked that question. Job's got an interesting phrase in verse 21. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity for the hand of God has struck me. Is that right? Is Job's theology right at this point? The hand of God has struck him. Is that right? Yes or no? And the answer is yes and no. Yes and no, because yes, God did give terrible permission. God allowed this to happen. Nothing takes God by surprise. But if you know the book of Job, then this is, this is really important for you to understand. Chapter 1, Satan said to God, Satan, the devil, said to God, stretch out your hand, God, and strike Job's flesh. And what did God say to Satan? No, he said. He's in your hands. But you, Satan, must spare his life. And so, yes, God gave permission, but it was the hand of Satan that did these terrible things. You've got to remember that, that your battle is not just against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual realm. Is God against you? No, he's not against you. But Satan is roaring around like a roaming lion looking to devour people and stop the gospel going out. And you imagine Satan whispering in Job's ear, your God doesn't love you, your God has left you. God is not good. Did you ever whisper in your ear like that? God is not good. God doesn't love you. God is against you. Do you have that room in your spiritual life for the, the spiritual battle, real forces of real influence? Because I keep meeting Christians who don't. But the Bible does. Satan will use good friends and solid Christians and, and loneliness and isolation to, to make you think that God is against you and he's not. That's why Ephesians 6 is an important passage that you've got your weapons, you've got the word, you've got the spirit, you've got prayer. Put your armor on as you howl. So it's okay to howl, but secondly, it's essential to howl with hope. It's essential to howl with hope. Job's longing, his desire, he just wants to be right with God. He wants to be vindicated. He wants his name to be respected. He said in verse 23, Oh, that my words were recorded. They, they were written on a scroll. Oh, that someone would actually write down what I say so that others could see it. Do you spot the irony there? Now, praise God it's written down for us so that we might see it and read it and understand as he speaks, 
he begins to speak words of hope and words of faith. Job says some amazing words in verse 25. It's a wow statement. It's a, a, a statement of deep conviction and deep truth and deep faith. Verse 25, look at those first two words. I know, says Job. I believe this. I'm confident of this. I know this. I know that my Redeemer lives, he says. We don't know how Job knew this. How did Job, thousands of years ago, know about a Redeemer? But he did know about a Redeemer. A Redeemer, according to the Bible, is just somebody who is related to you in some way who will buy you back or guarantee your safety or guarantee your security. So, you know, if, if, if you're in captivity, a redeemer will come and, and they will set you free. If a woman is widowed and childless, the, the redeemer, a relative will come and marry the widow and seek to give them a child to maintain the family line. And perhaps the best example of a redeemer is, is Boaz in the book of Ruth. The redeemer who cares, who restores her dignity and her hope and her identity and her security. And Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Who is Job's Redeemer? Is he looking for another Boaz? Do you know your Bibles? Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Exodus 6, 6. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Psalm 78, verse 35, they remember that God was their rock and God was their redeemer. Psalm 19, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Who is the redeemer? God himself. Job knows he has faith that God himself will save him, that God will liberate him, that God will take up Job's cause, that God will stand on the earth, verse 25. Now that could be a reference to the incarnation. Most likely it's saying, I know that God will stand up for me and plead my cause. I know that my faith in my God that I have loved and feared, he will vindicate me. And verse 26, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see my God. I will see him. With my own eyes, I am not another. How my heart yearns within me, or literally how my bowels fall within me, how I long and yearn with this gut-wrenching feeling, I just want to see my God. There's an old hymn, It is well with my soul. And the last verse says this, O Lord, haste the day. O Lord, haste the day when our faith will become sight. Not just believing in a Redeemer, but seeing our Redeemer face to face. Don't you long for that? Doesn't your heart yearn for that? A place with no sin and no suffering and no pain and no injustice. That was Job's faith in a Redeemer that he would see. And that's our faith, isn't it? I love these two statues. One's in Rio de Janeiro, the other's in Westminster Abbey. The one in Rio de Janeiro is it's a famous statue. Do you know what it's called? It's called Christ the Redeemer. 
And Christ the Redeemer stands over Rio de Janeiro and, and says, I am the one who will set you free. I am the one who will forgive you. I am the one who will redeem you from your sins. In Westminster Abbey, there's a, a statue of George Frederick Handel. And Handel's most famous piece of music is called The Messiah, isn't it? And in this statue, he's, he's holding a scroll with some writing on it and some music. And here's what it says, because in his brilliance, Handel puts Job 19 alongside 1 Corinthians 15. And Handel says this, quoting the Bible. It's on the screen. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see God. For now is Christ risen from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. See what Handel does? He says, Job knew that, that his Redeemer lives, and Job claimed he was going to see God. We know for certain now because Christ is risen. Because the tomb was empty, because death has been defeated, because Jesus was raised, he's the first fruit, so we will be raised. And so our Redeemer is just not just a man of history. Our Redeemer is our living Lord, who one day we will see face to face. More than that, actually, our, our Redeemer is alive today, isn't he? He's alive today, so he lives in us by his Spirit. And I don't mean to sound trite. I don't need, mean to diminish in any way the pain or the anguish or the agony you're going through. But when you understand that you have a risen, conquering Savior in Jesus Christ, who has redeemed you, who's brought you back, who sets you free, who will plead your cause. And on that last day when you see him face to face, he'll say, yes, he's mine, she's mine. He holds on to us. Verse 27, how my heart yearns to see Jesus. Do you yearn like that? Do you long like that to see Jesus face to face? When you sit with people who are really in the valley, they often say, I just want to go home and be with Jesus. Nancy Guthrie said this. Katie, someone will say to me, you must be a very strong person. But I know the truth. I'm not strong. However, I am tethered to someone who is strong. I'm not holding on to hope in terms of a positive perspective about the future but holding on to a living person. His name is Jesus Christ. See, Jesus holds us. Jesus is alive. And that's why we can say with confidence that God is not against us. He is for us. I'll finish with Romans chapter 8. And if you're into memorizing scripture, Romans 8 is a great chapter to memorize. Paul says this. What then shall we say? If God is for us, or since God is for us, literally, since God is for us, who can be against us? The answer being no one or no thing. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? No one. It's God who justifies 
Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. This is the question. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, add your own there, loneliness, disappointment, grief, sadness, despair, betrayal? No. As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We consider the sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Job knew. Paul is convinced of this. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you say that? Nothing can separate me from your love. No pain, no hardship, no toil, no agony. I'm convinced, God, that you're not against me, but you are for me. Why? Because we know our Redeemer. and His name is Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I'm so aware of the pain and the sadness that many of us are feeling in this room now. Father, please provide comfort. Wise comforters, not miserable comforters. Lord, as we groan and howl and cry in pain, Lord, would you please provide that hope Thank you, Lord, that our Lord Jesus is our Redeemer. Thank you, Lord, that he has defeated death. And thank you that one day we will see him face to face. Father, help us to say that nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. We ask it for Jesus' sake.